net zero by 2050, blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. So with four metres of sea level rise in the world, that's going to be a really serious catastrophe that everybody in the world is going to have to take some serious action and cities will have to be abandoned and it's, 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 it's bad news. Is net zero enough? Should no, we be looking it's, beyond it's net zero? No, we, yeah, we should be looking at absolute zero. It's not really the point where we start making it better. It's the point where we stop making it worse. But climate change is something which is unfortunately already killing people and will only get worse out into the future. There are many Paris signatories that have not actually submitted a 1.5 aligned trajectory uh, goals. It, Earth really does feel like it is this very special place that is so lucky to be our home. I think we need action, we need execution. Yeah, it's too late, too late. We have to take action, and the action is now. We do you must prepare our future. Young people can work together to uh, take action. It's time, it's time, it's time. What do we want? This Waterline Summit is about how do we bring the right people together to collaborate and how do we make it happen. Hello, thanks for joining us and welcome to our opening presentation at the Waterline Live 2021. Throughout the next four weeks, I'll be reporting from the Waterline Summit and how it's connecting the Humber with COP26 and the rest of the world with an award-winning, here it is, omni-channel series of webinars, podcasts, special features, videos, and online resources. Uh, this week, we'll have daily podcasts discussing what's happening at the summit, plus a series of video programs looking at different aspects of climate change, from the science and latest data to business opportunities, emerging national and international policies, plus the views and initiatives coming from a new generation. We hear from guests around the world and even some who have traveled out of this world to bring us a unique perspective. So to set the scene, we have a varied and distinguished panel of guests today. From the United Nations headquarters in New York, there's Laura Patterson representing the World Meteorological Organization. In Seoul, South Korea, we welcome Sunwoo Vivian Lee, the Senior Climate Diplomacy Lead at Solutions for Our Climate. Joining us from Bangkok in Thailand is Dan Pathomvanich, CEO of Sustainable Food Business, NRF, who sits on the country's UN Global Compact Subcommittee on the Environment. In Washington, D.C., Michael Sheldrick, the co-founder and chief policy impact and government affairs officer for Global Citizen, a movement campaigning to end poverty, achieve equity, and defend the planet. From Italy, we welcome back Catriona Graham, UK government's consul general in Milan, and the director for clean growth in Europe at the Department for International Trade. And recently returned from a trip to space with Captain Kirk, a San Francisco-based tech investor, musician, and DJ 
who's a former NASA scientist and founder of a climate change monitoring micro-satellite business, Planet Labs, astronaut Dr. Chris Bosshausen. Climate change is accelerating, and greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere continue to increase. The IPCC report earlier this year pulled no punches. We'll drastically overshoot the targets of the Paris Agreement unless there's urgent, ambitious and decisive action. Much of the data that informs the IPCC reports is coordinated by the World Meteorological Organization. And we're joined from the UN by Laura Patterson. Welcome, Laura. Uh, Tell us briefly about your journey to this role with the WMO. I know you were originally at the Met Office here in the UK. I um, I was a meteorologist with the Met Office for around about 11 or 12 years. And there was um, a request around about three or four years ago now from the UN to really have more weather and climate information um, feeding into their operations. And following that, there was a, a new role that was created in New York, which which I've been doing, um, and I've since even moved on to another role as well. So it's um, it's been a it's been a good a good progression really, and very glad actually that I have that that basis of the the meteorology to um, to do this work based on. Being in New York and working around the United Nations, where does the sort of the science meets policy come in here? Yeah, exactly. So that's a lot of what what we're really trying to do at WMO is is trying to bring the science from our um, WMO community, from all our national meteorological services, into as much as possible the actions and the um, the, the meetings, the um, the processes, and the the main events that are going on at UN headquarters. Um, and so there's a lot of trying to make sure that we make the um, the science as salient as possible, really um, impactful for the policy, um, so that we can really try to target it into either the resolutions of the General Assembly or other organs of the United Nations, but also even into the speeches of um, the, the heads of the United Nations as well. I mean, there is a natural sort of cycle, and, and usually before the COP meetings, there are the, the sort of latest reports come out from the WMO and other organisations. And we've seen uh, an acceleration of that this year. There's virtually a report from someone every day, if not more than one report every day. Uh, and uh, you've had a number of reports coming out as 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 well. I mean, what are the, the sort of the, the, the headline takeaways from all of this? Because I know you look across greenhouse gases and temperatures and all these sorts of things. What what are the the key parameters that you're particularly looking at and particularly drawing people's attention to? So I I do think that there's a huge amount of reports out there and this year has been um, particularly so in, in that regard. Um, we have actually had um, one of the one of the key reports that we've we've issued really tries to address this by bringing together lots of the different pieces into one narrative, um, so that we don't overwhelm with a new report every day. Um, and that one was really um, the United and Science report that we issued around a month ago. Um, and the headline from that is really that um, you know the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, did not um, result in the emissions reductions that we, you know, that we're hoping for from climate action. Um, that emissions have indeed already 
bounced back to near um, 2019 levels in many sectors. And the headline really is that we're not on track to, to meet the Paris Agreement. And that's very evident in the, the science and the climate indicators and also in the trajectory of um, what's expected to happen over the next few years. Mm. Because uh, the greenhouse gases, CO2, they're still climbing. Um, and I, I think uh, it was the UN Secretary General himself who said that we could be on track for a 27 degree rise rather than 1.5 so all rather concerning and all you can do is you know you're the piano player you just serve up the the the, the data the bad, uh, the bad, the bad news yes <laughs> <laughs> we um we we are and we one one other good aspect at least you know so a lot of what wmo does is often serving up this bad news um we tracking tracking the climate indicators to show that we're really not on track you know that and that report that you mentioned that secretary general um guterres spoke of in the summer was based on the latest updates um to the ndcs um which are government's commitments to to meet the um the paris agreement and it found yes that we're 2.7 degrees we're heading for um which is a far cry from the 1.5 we would like to aim for but another good aspect that we've um, been trying to highlight this summer is actually some of the solutions um, that, that what we can offer towards um, towards this issue. And one um, particular finding that we had over the summer was that over the past 50 years, even though the number of um, weather and climate disasters has increased, I think by about fivefold, um, we find that the number of deaths is reducing quite markedly and um, that the, the the cost, however, of the economic cost of these um, events is going up. So I think there is within that, there's an important story about the value of early warning systems, about predicting um, predicting the weather really um, with enough lead time so that we're able to take action on the ground to protect communities, to protect infrastructure, and to actually, with the longer term projections, also plan to, to build a more resilient society going forward. So what sense do you get as you move through the, the corridors of the UN? And I know there's been frenzied diplomatic activity going on in the background ahead of the G20 and, and, and COP26. But what's your gut feel there in terms of the ability for COP26 to make some meaningful landmark decisions, do you think, based on the data you've been feeding in? I think I think there is... Um, I think COP26 will be... It does have the potential to be a good step forward on this. I don't think it's going to solve the problem completely, um, but I think it's a chance for us to um, come up with, for um, countries to come up with a credible plan of how we are going to deal with this in the future. I don't think we're going to have announcements that um, solve the problem and set out all of those details, but I think we we could see more commitments, at least from um, particularly the, the main countries that are um, the main polluting countries, you know, the G20 in particular, um, about how they have a credible plan to actually deal with this over the next few years. Um, because that's really what's needed. You know, the many of the countries who are actually the some of the most ambitious are actually some of these smallest countries that are, you know, least responsible for the problem, but most dealing with the impacts of it. And I think this is really an opportunity, COP26, for the for the main polluting countries to to step up and and come up with a credible plan of how they're going to to deal with that. So, to to close, if there was one thing you'd like to emphasise overall, what would it be? 
Oh, one thing. I think we we really do need to, um, I, I, in some ways, I feel like if I had to say pick one thing, I would think that the mitigation side is is probably being dealt with by someone else. So I can feel that I'm, I can voice my support for really dealing with the adaptation aspect. So this is adapting to climate change and um, finding ways that we can um, better um, build the resilience of communities in the most vulnerable areas to the changes that we know are going to happen. So how we can better warn them in advance, how we can better take action on that to protect mm -hmm. lives and livelihoods. And I think that's really something that needs greater focus on, um, particularly given that we're already at 1.2 degrees above um, pre-industrial temperatures and that we're, this is only going to increase. The Asia-Pacific region is under threat from rising sea levels, extreme weather, both storms and heat waves. Uh, it's also an area that still relies too much on fossil fuels, in particular coal. I spoke a little earlier to Sunwoo Vivian Lee, the Senior Climate Diplomacy Lead at Solutions for Our Climate, and I started by asking her to describe her organisation. Yeah, so Solutions for Our Climate is uh, an independent um, nonprofit based in Seoul, South Korea. And uh, we work across different sections from campaigning to research, policy advocacy, and we also have a litigation team. And uh, main purpose of our organization is to encourage South Korea to align uh, greenhouse gas emission trajectories with Paris Agreement. And of course, we focus on energy transition and uh, industrial decarbonization. And what's your role within the organization? Yeah, so I'm in charge of the uh, the climate diplomacy team, and we cover potential uh, global opportunities for Korea to make ambitious uh, announcements on climate commitments, or we also do analysis of uh, Asia trends and what direction the climate energy transition uh, and clean uh, energy solution discussions uh, are going into. There's clearly um, a high frequency now of these um, diplomatic meetings, shuttle yeah. diplomacy going on all the time at the right. moment, um, nudging people up to, on their commitments. Um, what's the sort of balance uh, that you see between, if you like, national independent decisions and the influence of the global community? Mm. Well, I think, you know, it, it has to be targeted from both sides. So there is some sort of a burden for each and every country who has signed on to the Paris Agreement, which is basically the world, to commit and do their part in making sure that the world does not go beyond the 1.5 warming degree scenario. Um, however, I do think that sort of a coalition of movements uh, whether that's, you know, beginning with the G7s or the G20s, or even by regions, I guess Europe is a very front runner in this uh, sort of discussions, but that sort of coalition gives rise to the discussions and sort of um, sort of a helping hand to each other. I think I think that's very important. I think the whole idea that no one gets left behind is sort of the whole idea be behind this uh, these global events and uh, convenings 
and making sure that everyone feels included in this discussion because everyone is included in the discussion according to Paris. So. And what we've been hearing in recent weeks is, I guess, that the feeling that we're not going to hit 1.5, it's going to overshoot, was certainly what we're seeing, uh, and uh, emissions continue to climb. Um, mm. where, where is the pressure, do you feel, at the moment um, in trying to get some meaningful commitments, particularly by the time yeah. we sit down at... COP26. Mm, yeah. I guess I can first comment that I still think that we can keep our hopes high and try to first start off with discussing the fact that not all countries have uh, climate targets as their priority of agenda when they talk about it in, in each countries. And there are many Paris signatories that have not actually submitted a 1.5 aligned trajectory uh, goals. So this needs to happen first, Korea included, and that's expected to happen at COP. The G20 ministerial, which took place in July, actually came up with a joint communique that read that the G20 countries will um, try to enhance their NDC, the nationally determined contributions by COP26. There were a lot of discussions around the, the G, uh, G20 ministerial and whether it was a success or not. But personally, I think that was quite a bit of a success to get the G20 countries to commit to uh, submitting a 1.5 aligned um, scenario or make the effort to do so. And, and these countries are, you know, your China's, your India's and these countries. And that's, that's sort of a big step. And that shows that the countries are actually moving towards that. So I, I do think that that's the first task uh, that we need to do. And then the second task is how do we actually transition into clean energy solutions? And around the world, there are steps towards phasing out coal. I, I think that's sort of now everyone understands that coal is not, not just for climate ambitions that you need to phase it out, but for stranded asset uh, concerns because coal will be devalued in the future, in the very near future. And at one point, uh, renewables will be cheaper than coal, especially also in Asia, this will happen in years. So I think the idea that we need to phase out coal is taking place uh, and widely understood. But then the discussion comes into what other solutions can we be reliant on? And the active discussion is around gas and LNG uh, oil which, which are also fossil fuels. So I think we need to be careful not to so easily tread back into the trap of falling into another solutions of fossil fuels and try to take this opportunity to talk about how do we enhance our infrastructure for renewables? How, how do we finance renewables? How do we share knowledge and technology on renewables with each other? I mean, we've seen these hikes in prices recently in gas and oil, uh, yeah. which on the one hand, I guess, makes renewables even more competitive. But on the other hand, there have been some challenges such as here in the UK, because uh, there's been, you know, some poor wind conditions, which has put stresses on things and other, uh, and other problems. Are we likely to see that sort itself out, do you feel? I realise this might not be your area of speciality. Um, or is that likely to, to peak then crash? 
Mm. Well, I'm not a finance expert. I'll say that first. But uh, I think there are enough uh, research and uh, projections made by finance experts that show that at one point there will be a serious devaluation of fossil fuels. And maybe that's more imminent to Europe, where you are much ahead of Asia. But I think in Asia, that sort of sentiment has not hit uh, yet in the right places. There are companies, however, like you know Samsung Construction, and, and they are a prime example of declaring that they will exit coal. And they've made that announcement because they made the um, decision that, okay, if we continue on this path, this will be financially a huge burden for us. And because of that, uh, I think a lot of Korean companies and even the Korean National Pension Service announced that they will not be uh, positively reviewing coal anymore. And Korean National Pension Service is the third largest pension service in the world. So considering that, I think I think the movement and momentum is now starting to initiate in Asia. And it's very likely at one point the devaluation will hit. Um. Putting your diplomatic hat on one side, what's your gut feel about the future? Well, I think we know that Korea will announce a uh, ambitious NDC, uh, and that's something that's been promised. So that's with my hat on <laughs> and <laughs> with my hat off. Uh, the the sort the sort of uh, discussions we're hearing in Korea is that uh, the the figure that will be announced at COP twenty six will be forty percent below twenty eighteen peak levels by 2030, which is not a figure that's Paris aligned, unfortunately. However, what's what's uh, sort of a um, positivity around this is we will have a uh, national elections, a presidential elections in March next year. And in our carbon neutrality bill, it actually gives power to the president, not, not the president, but a president to be able to announce an enhanced figure. So even the 40, even if the 40% comes at COP, there could be a possibility that we have a more uh, enhanced figure next year or so. So it's, I would like to just say that, you know, COP26 is not, not the deadline, but it's, it's a, a, a stepping stone to something more ambitious for South Korea. And um, we hope that coal phase out year could be a discussion of topic at COP and possibly in an announcement, but uh, we'll have to see if, if Korea is ready for that early enough. You may have seen a televised concert recently, Global Citizen Live, which took place around the world to raise awareness of global poverty and inequality exacerbated by the increasing impact of climate change on communities who can least afford to protect themselves. We're joined by Michael Sheldrick, the co-founder and chief policy impact and government affairs officer for Global Citizen. Uh, But you're not a concert promoter, Mick. Explain a little more about the movement. No, absolutely not. In fact, I always joke before um, I started working at Global Citizen, um, I had only ever been to one concert in my lifetime and my event management skills were next to zero. So definitely <laughs> not a concert promoter. No, I was uh, an activist at university in, in Australia, um, you know, knocking on politicians' doors, trying to encourage them to do the right thing for the, the planet and the world and, and people. 
but essentially at Global Citizens Core is the idea that the citizen is the major agent of change. And, you know, the last decade, we've been able to help mobilize millions of people around the world um, to take action on important issues connected to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, a 17-point plan to end extreme poverty, mitigate um, climate change and reduce inequality. And, and really, you know, part of our uh, modus operandi is how do you engage people and mainstream these important issues? And one way to do that is through culture, right? I mean, we live in this bubble in which we talk about climate change all the time, but I heard this statistic the other day that only 14% of people here in America actually talk, oh, it might even be 12%, it was a very low number, but actually talk about climate change. Um, and we shouldn't forget that for most people, you know, they've got so many things going on in their life, they might be alarmed about it, they might be worried about it, but are they worried enough to take action to go out and have a look? And so, you know, by partnering, you know, with, with culture, it's a way to mainstream these issues, get them engaged, and, and hopefully give them a, a platform um, to take action. Um, and so that was really, you know, ultimately what culminated in Global Citizen Live. Because a lot of your work initially was around sort of global poverty and inequality and, and, and climate change also has its uh, issues around that in terms of uh, the countries that uh, are amongst those worst affected and can least afford to defend against it, um, you know, are, are uh, at the mercy of all of this. Uh, and even at Youth for Climate, I think the outcomes were, you know, wanting climate action with social justice. And that seems to be a big part of your, what you're about as well. Well, exactly. And I, and I think, I mean, there's a couple of things to unpack there when we talk about mm. environmental justice. I think, you know, the fact of the matter is, is everyone should have the right to develop. Everyone should um, have the opportunity to fulfill their potential. And the worst thing that could happen is if you went about an approach to climate change that didn't take that into an account. And you know, going back over the decades, I wasn't around then, but I was often told of this deep chasm between those in the human development world and those in climate change, because it was seeing if you were taking action on climate change, you were opposed to the development of you know, other parts of the world, right? That was in, in progress. From their perspective, those countries are like, well, you know, you guys are responsible for 80% of historical industrial emissions. Why can't we develop? Why can't we achieve this? So there has to be a recognition that people deserve their right to develop and they shouldn't be penalized for the climate change occurring right now. At the same time, the harsh reality is if everyone followed the path of the West, the, the planet would boil and we're already seeing that and so when we talk about justice you know people use other terms compensation etc yeah. we're really talking about the fact that poorer nations mm. shouldn't be penalized for their right to develop and there should be a just and fair transition yeah. and you know policy wise that has sort of manifested itself in this idea that the developed world made a promise to give a hundred billion dollars annually to help these poorer nations both mitigate and adapt to the impact of climate change. And unfortunately, 
the fact that we still haven't met that promise has led to a huge erosion of trust. And you know, you've got countries in Africa saying, look, we're responsible for less than 4% of emissions. We're on the front lines here. And yet you're asking us to rock up with commitments, but you haven't met your end of the bargain. And so I think you know a lot of people are saying to even get to the negotiating table and have this good faith negotiation, this is a gesture which the wealthiest countries should really fulfill. And, you know, we say $100 billion a year. It sounds like a lot of um, money, but really amongst these countries' economy, it's a it's a fraction of GDP. You know, the U.S. is set to spend $750 billion next year on its, on its U.S. Um, defense budget. So this is something we should prioritize. And what are you guys doing in these final weeks, I guess, to keep on the, the pressure? I don't know whether you'll actually have a presence at COP26 as well. I'll certainly be there. And we we're, we have a number of in-person activations, also given a platform to many of the young activists out there to make sure that the world hears their voices and, and what they want. But look, here in the US, we are going to be continuing to push Congress to act and step up and ask in our citizens across the country to contact their local representatives. And I think globally, we're going to be trying to track down that missing 15 to 20 billion. You know, we managed to see on the weekend at Global Citizen Live, Italy came out with a pledge to pledge. They said, look, we're pledging to significantly increase our commitment to climate financing sometime ahead of COP. So we'll be holding them accountable. There's others like Spain, Portugal, Austria, you know, that we also need to step up as well. So we'll be pushing that out over the next um, four weeks with our supporters. We'll be doing um, a, a whole ton of activity, you know, and, and I, Martina's just amazing because we've just come off this big, huge event, but we were always very clear, you know, this Global Citizen Live that brought together 55 artists over a 24-hour period, that it was meant to be the kickoff rather than the end of this sort of month-long countdown to the G20 and, and COP26 summits. Thanks for your time and for your contribution and for your work. No worries. Thank you so much. Really Thank appreciate you. it, Jonathan. We'll see you soon. Pleasure. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. Now in Bangkok, we have Dan Pathamvanich with us, CEO of Food Business NRF, a signatory to the country's UN Global Compact. He also sits on their subcommittee on the environment. Welcome, Dan. Uh, what's led to your passion for sustainability, do you feel? Um, I would say there was uh, three pivotal moments in the past four years that has shaped um, our corporate direction as well as my personal direction. So the first um, was I met um, a customer of ours um, back in the summer of 2017, and he was making, a plant, you know, we were making plant-based meats for him. And uh, he was annoyingly persistent in trying to convince me to go vegan. <laughs> and um, he just happened to be our fastest growing client. And when we did a deep dive as to, you know, what would what could be like the next um, growth um, S curve for a company, uh, and I did a deep dive in plant based proteins, um, alternative proteins. This was in summer two thousand seventeen. Okay, so. Beyond was still a failed startup, right? There was no impossible. Um, people laughed at veganism. Okay, climate change was was there, but it wasn't 
mainstream conversation in the sense that it wasn't picked up, um, I think, to that extent. And um, when we did the research, we met, I met so many people in the industry. So, um, I, so we committed that alternative protein is the future of the world. It's a solution to climate change. Um, and this is where we want to be is we, this, we want to focus on alternative proteins, replicating the success that our company already had in ethnic foods. And so whatever we did in ethnic foods, I wanted to replicate the business model, which was, you know, 60% OEM manufacturing, 40% brand. Um, we use a mix of, you know, like skilled, automated um, um, processing. Um, it's all about kind of reputation and it's about sustainability. So, um, so that was like one key moment. The second key moment is um, I met um, many of our customers um, in Europe. So really it was a Europe, it was, it was Europe that convinced me that if we wanted to, I was trying to figure out how do we stand out as a OEM manufacturer? And they basically said that most European companies want to deal with companies with similar values, right? And if we wanted to stand out, we had to stand out from a sustainability angle. And, um, you know, I did a deep dive again, right? I, I, looked, I looked at the math and then I saw the, the, the connection between kind of, um, you know, feeding 10 billion people, climate change and alternative proteins. And so we combined it um, into one strategy. Um, and so we committed to um, a signatory member. We became a member of the, the compact back in 2017. Decarbonization um, was part of the plan, but I didn't think that it would be something that would be impactful so soon, so soon. So it comes to the third key moment, um, I think in our four-year history um, um, at, with this company. Um, in 2000 and uh, the, it was, it was the, the, the end of 2018, uh, I'm sorry, the beginning of 2019. So I used to travel, I spent 141 days in a hotel traveling. So that's two thirds of my year just traveling, you know? And I remember I came home one day and um, uh, I just came to pick up my, my, my bags and I, I was heading back out the door. I said, you know, goodbye to my son. And then he looks at me and he says, why are you going again? And I'm, and I'm like, I have to go, I have to work. And uh, don't forget, right? I'm out of one month, I'm traveling three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And then he looks at me and says, well, don't you love me anymore? And I'm looking at him now. I feel like, you know, he just took like a big knife and just literally plunged it right into my heart. And I'm like, gosh, um, that moment I felt um, uh, this would now become a personal mission because I had to justify my time away from home. It's not about money anymore. It, 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 it had to be, uh, if I spend a day away from my family, I want, it, I want to be sure that it's, I'm doing something that makes my son proud, my family proud. And so, um, so in 2019, um, we became more aggressive and that's when we committed to science-based targets, 1.5 degree, it's here, <laughs> 1.5 degree pledge. Um, so we pledged in uh, 2019 um, and um, we built our entire strategy around decarbonization. I, don't, I, didn't, I never really talked about it um, because I felt it wasn't the right time. I mean, you know, I talk in the media about plant-based all the time, but um, now with the IPCC report, um, that was released this year. That was a game changer. Um, it is, um, I think, the basis for regulatory reform around the world. And I feel that this is the moment for decarbonization. And so 
um, if you search news for me and our company since the IPCC report, all I talk about is decarbonization of the food system. Mm. Do you think that's a trend we're going to see continue that, I guess, irrespective of what governments are doing, uh, organizations having to, you know, be responsible and demonstrate the sustainability uh, are potentially going to lead and bring pressure on their respective governments to follow suit? Um, I think private sector CEOs as a coalition, which is exactly what I'm proposing, is that um, to set up a coalition, um, you know, to get to net zero, um, private sector, government sector, hand in hand working on this. Um, we've, on our own company, we've announced multiple initiatives, including Thailand's first blue carbon initiative, um, basically uh, sea gro- sea, um, um, seaweed farming, seagrass and ma- mangrove uh, protection. Um, and we're, what we're going to do with the seaweed is we're going to convert that into biochar. And we're going to take the biochar to improve soil productivity and retention, obviously then carbon sequestration. Um, uh, in the eastern side of Thailand with, um, with, an, with another state company. Uh, so I think private sector needs to lead. Mm. So what would your message be to uh, businesses watching the Waterline Summit, large and small, in terms of, I don't know, their commitment and, and their strategies going forward from what you've said? Um, I think climate change is humanity's biggest um, challenge and it it is one of the greatest opportunities of our lifetime right and I think the private sector should view this as an opportunity um, and shift their business model not just being satisfied with being carbon neutral right but how do we be uh, you know transform our business into a way that's basically um, carbon negative or something that's a positive contribution um, in the fight against climate change. Um, I think this is, um, uh, as I mentioned, this is an imperative. And um, that, that's my, my one wish to, to, to everybody who, um, who's at Waterline and who um, uh, has an interest in, in climate change, that we, we must get this done. It's, 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 it's on us because we can't wait for other people to, uh, to follow suit. Well, great to speak. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, it's been really valuable to have this. And um, uh, let's keep in touch. And it'd be great to interview you for the uh, news feeds at uh, COP26. Sure. Thank you so much. Well, Dan talked about the growing business opportunities from the green economy, and we can now turn our attention to Europe. It's good to welcome back Catriona Graham, the Consul General in Milan and also Director for Clean Growth in Europe with the Departments for International Trade. Well, Catriona, they say a week's a long time in politics, but it's been a year. So what are the big changes and trends on your radar? Well, Clean growth has remained a big focus for us, not just here in Milan, where we have recently hosted the, the pre-COP26 conference, but across, across Europe. And I think you're right that there's been a change even since one year ago. Uh, the main change I point to is that the momentum is just there now on clean growth in a way that I've worked on clean growth for over 10 years, it's it really feels now that this is something that 
every organization every company has got on their radar you're not really a credible business these days if you don't have some sort of sustainability plan or strategy to reach um, zero emissions in the future and so that's really exciting it means that I think the you know I work with the business community the business community understands that a green future is a prosperous future, one that's going to secure growth for their industries. This is the next big thing in terms of an economic opportunity, as well as the right thing to do for the planet. So I think we are seeing, we've seen this year, businesses all over the world um, over uh, commit to net zero. Our UN campaign on the race to zero that we're really pushing ahead of the COP26 conference has has now over over 3,000 businesses signed up to it. Um, Just one example of how businesses are really starting to, you know, put uh, real commitments on paper to ambitious targets for reaching net zero by by 2050 in their own organisation. And that's happening everywhere. It's great to see. Mm. I know from when we spoke previously, you're familiar with the Humber and a lot of the infrastructure here and renewables and 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 other things and again here the last year so much has happened massive amounts of investment even bigger and more ambitious plans on offshore renewables massive investment into blue and green hydrogen carbon capture um you know a real sense of um ambition here uh is is this something you're you're seeing elsewhere and is this opening up opportunities for these businesses to maybe do more trade with europe with their expertise exactly i think the hum is a really great example of of this transition i mean the hum is a region of the uk which benefited from the first industrial revolution was really at the heart of you know the first industrial revolution based around coal and i think as our as our minister who was here in milan recently said it's 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 interesting that the 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 industrial revolution we're now seeing in the humber is based around the removal of coal from our economy and uh, it's fantastic to see the same region um growing in in the same way but this time uh in in a in a green uh, in a green sense and so i think the humber can be an example for other regions around the world of this fact that uh, the green transition leads to economic growth leads to new jobs and that's i mean it's 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 what's inspired i think the success in particularly in that region around offshore wind has been what has inspired now the nationwide plan that uh, the prime minister uh, has launched around this 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution for the entire UK, which, of course, one of those points is offshore wind, um, but includes all other sectors as well, hydrogen, nuclear power, uh, zero emissions vehicles, uh, maritime industry, etc. And so I think we're going to see the opportunities, and we already are in the Humber, broaden from just offshore wind to to all of those sectors as well. And um, it's not just the UK that's doing this. All, you know, all of... 70% 70% of the world has now, 70% of the global economy is now covered by a net zero target of some kind. 
So 70% of the world is going to be going through a similar growth trajectory and needs the expertise that's now really very established in the Humber region to, to succeed in that journey. And despite Brexit, is the opportunity to trade off that expertise uh, just as great uh, with Europe? And I see that Britain is talking to Italy on a trade deal now. Yes, we certainly think so. Europe is still and will remain uh, 50% of the UK's exports, uh, in fact, over that. And so we've got an established relationship here, um, suppliers who know and respect our UK companies and the expertise that they bring, particularly in clean growth. And so that is only going to grow. Uh, You're right, we we just announced a really exciting new dialogue with our Italian partners to promote exports and investment. So sharing best practice and also linking our companies together, a really, really practical initiative between our two governments to make sure that exports and investment continue to grow uh, because we are such important trading partners for each other. And do you feel the more ambitious commitments that we're seeing and are likely to uh, be formalised maybe out of uh, COP26 are going to drive the potential for export of solutions from the UK and the Humber included even more in the years to come? Absolutely. I think that the COP, the presidency of COP26 that the UK is holding is, is demonstrating just how important a role the UK has to play, not actually just at home in decarbonising, though we're very proud of our track record on doing that, but as a as a global leader in this space, also influencing other countries around the world to do the same. So I think Glasgow is going to be a fantastic platform for our international friends to see the very best of UK innovation in clean growth, of UK company expertise in clean growth and I think that will put many of our companies in a fantastic position to build those partnerships and that visibility around the world uh, as well as just uh, at home. The entire UK government is very much focused on this clean growth agenda that includes the Department for International Trade that, that I represent And uh, wherever you are uh, listening to this, whether you're in the Humber, in in another part of the UK or overseas, um, please make sure that you reach out to uh, your local contact in the Department for International Trade who can help you to foster these partnerships and to um, give visibility to the expertise uh, and experience of your company on the international stage uh, in the run up to this really important conference. Lovely. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, And uh, do you get across to COP26 or do you leave it to your colleagues? I think I might be there, but um, not in the negotiations, of course. But there's so much going on in the margins uh, for business that um, uh, that if I've got a role, I'll be part of that for sure. Yeah. Okay. well, thanks again. And uh, safe travels. Maybe see you in uh, Glasgow. I hope so. Thanks Thanks. a lot. Thanks again. Bye. Bye bye for now. And now from around the world to out of this world. 
Last week, Dr. Chris Bosshausen joined Captain Kirk in the form of Star Trek actor William Shatner and two other crewmates for a suborbital spaceflight aboard a Blue Origin New Shepard rocket. There are two strong links with climate change, despite the debate that's been raging between joyriding into space and fixing the Earth. In the summer, Hullminster hosted the Gaia exhibition for the Freedom Festival. In fact, Marketing Humber held a climate change and decarbonisation themed event underneath the massive model of Earth made up of high resolution images. The concept was to create an impression of the overview effect experienced by astronauts who appreciate the fragility and beauty of our planet when seen from space. Chris not only wanted to experience this, but has built his career on studying the Earth from space using miniature satellites. I spoke to Chris before his much-anticipated spaceflight and asked him about his work with NASA to miniaturise satellites and the creation of an innovative microsatellite company called Planet Lab. So we, we sat around and wrote a list of things we thought we could do and mapping the Earth with a huge constellation of satellites to monitor climate change and our changing landscape. Like, what could be a better idea than that? So the idea at Planet was that if we could launch hundreds and put them in a long string, then we could see everything. And then as the Earth turned around once per day, that string of satellites would just pass over the Earth like a line scanner and we'd be able to capture everything that was happening. Um, so we can monitor forests. We do a lot of work, uh, particularly with the Norwegian government um, on deforestation globally. Um, we monitor all of the barrier reefs, uh, which is a partnership with uh, Paul Allen before he sadly passed away, um, the Seattle-based uh, Microsoft uh, billionaire. Um, so we monitor all of the, 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 the coral reefs around the world and um, even things like urbanization and, and uh, the, the expansion of cities and the impact on the landscape. We can see that happening day by day. And then last Wednesday, the 13th of October, Chris finally realized a childhood dream to fly into space. Well, Chris, great to reconnect. Um, just tell me where I find you. Yeah, I'm currently uh, sitting in the uh, New Shepard uh, training capsule. So this is uh, where we did our simulations for space flight. Wow. And uh, my seat here, seat number four. So we spent about three whole days sitting in this capsule uh, doing simulations, dry runs at the launch, and you know the emergency situations. You know, just like a plane, there's an exit that we can open. Yeah. And if we need to escape at any point, we can do that. So we did all of the training on how to do that. And probably the funnest part was trying to learn how to put your seatbelt on in, in zero G. <laughs> Which, you know, we, in, in Earth, you just fall into your seat. Here, you, your seat will push you away. So you have to learn how to get in. Different astronauts respond in different ways because although you all have the same experience, uh, the effects can dif differ depending on the individual and so i guess are you still processing all this and the the view you must have had tell me about that yeah i, I probably in the in the latter camp um i i feel like I'm, I'm grateful actually that we had william shatner with us because he's such a great orator to hear him to, to hear him describe it in real time is what we were all feeling i think but he could put it in words and and uh, i think maybe the difference was 
he's not actually a space guy, right? He, he told it, he admitted to us, guys, I'm, I'm a space fantasist. I've lived in mm. fantasy. And, and I, he, he said he didn't give a lot of thought to space reality. And so I think it hit him like a ton of bricks. <laughs> no description can equal this. And how did the experience of looking out at the Earth compare to what you were anticipating? Yeah, actually, I was really worried about that before I flew, that as in, you know, a space geek that I've read every book, I've heard every astronaut talk about it, I've watched every space movie. I was worried that I'd be desensitized to the experience. Um, and in fact, actually, I was wholly and inadequately prepared for this. It was so different. And I went up to another astronaut who was joined us for dinner last night. And I said, can I chat to you for a minute? He said, yeah. And I said, I have this problem. I, I've heard you and all of your colleagues talk about this forever. And it turns out I misunderstood you. And it was a, like a deeply profound and amazing experience. And I said, I, I, I feel like when you talked about it, I didn't receive the truth of what you were telling me. And they're like, yeah, I've always failed my entire career since I came, came back from, from uh, the space shuttle mission. I've never been able to communicate to people what I actually felt and saw. And so I get that now and I can't communicate to you, Jonathan, what I felt and saw. Mm. Because you have to see it. You have, you have this beautiful view behind you. I've seen that shot behind you so many times. It is deeper and richer and more vibrant and more captivating than you could ever imagine. Mm. It does not look like what's behind you. It's more than the sum of the parts. It's, it is. It's, and it's not just the vision. It's everything that goes with it, I guess. Yeah, this, it's a full sensory experience. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's, it's strange and beautiful. I mean, you sound moved by your experience. As much as you're a space evangelist, are you, a, I don't know, a re, not reinvigorated, but a reinforced Earth advocate? I am. I am. I, uh, you know, they often say one, one of the values of this overview effect, as it's called, and seeing the Earth is that people return with a new enthusiasm to care for our planet. Well, I already have that. Um, so that's something I've, I've adopted uh, you know, for a long time and I still believe in. Um, but it's, it's great to reaffirm that. But I think just really understanding uh, our context in space. And one of the things I also wanted to do was make sure I looked out. And, you know, with the sun, as you can see in your photo behind you, the sun is there. It's difficult. You can't see stars. Mm -hmm. So it's just black. Um, but I wanted to see that. And I think, you know, also for, for William Shatner, him seeing that just the depth of space was shocking. And it's, it's a powerful thing. I guess if we could get all the decision makers from COP26 to share your experience, it might have an even more profound effect on, on accelerating our uh, work against climate change. I think it would, that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, absolutely. everyone, all world leaders should have this as a compulsory exercise for them to be qualified to be stewards of their, their country and their, their slice of earth. Absolutely, absolutely. So I guess um, to try and sum up this brief con conversation then, um, what's, what's the biggest takeaway you've got from this short but profound experience? Um, 
the, the biggest takeaway would be that uh, you, sh you should go. And everyone watching this should go because I've now discovered how difficult it is to communicate the experience. And the best way I can think I can describe it is the way I'm doing it right now. I'm sure you will find ways to convey as best you can the experience through uh, the, 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 the many uh, artistic forms you also have at your disposal. Yeah, I look forward to sharing it. And uh, thanks for chatting again. An incredible experience for Chris, and one which will clearly reinforce his passion for the planet. Thanks to all our guests today, and watch out for special podcasts with extended conversations with all today's speakers. Plus, we have many more great guests to come in further video features and podcasts in which we explore the science and data of climate change, how businesses of all sizes can transform their organisations for the new opportunities presented by the green economy and clean growth. We also talk to a new generation, young people who will inherit the challenges of climate change. We hear not only their concerns and experiences, but also the responses and solutions they're already implementing. And there are daily podcasts reviewing key points of interest from the Waterline Summit 2021. Look out for the links on social media and visit the website at thewaterline.global. I'm Jonathan Levy. Thanks for watching.